Good morning, brothers. So good to see everyone. Good to see new faces too this late in the game. We're glad you're here eating a hot breakfast and studying God's Word with us. Um, as you're uh, finding your seats, I encourage you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 14. You know, as you're turning to John chapter 14, you remember the context. We are now in the upper room discourse, which began in chapter 13. The crowds are gone. Judas Iscariot is gone. And Jesus is alone with his own, his beloved friends, his disciples. And he's in the middle of this very tender but extremely important instruction um, that he's giving to his friends, that he's giving to his beloved disciples, showing them how to bear the cross, what they'll need to know, what they'll need to do to follow him after he's gone. Now, something I find really interesting about John chapter 14, you'll remember last week uh, when we began this new discourse, Jesus revealed to us just momentarily how he was doing on the inside. He told us about his emotions. He revealed that to us, and he told us that he was troubled. When we get to John chapter 14 in our passage today, this is really the main theme, the context of all we're going to learn. We learn about how the disciples are doing, what their emotions are like, and here's a hint, they're not doing well. They are deeply distressed and deeply troubled, and we understand why they might be that way. It's very understandable. One, after the excitement of the triumphant entry, they immediately go to this upper room and uh, just kind of the tone of the day changes. There's this strange interaction with these subjects being brought up of uh, betrayal and denial that some of the friends, some of the disciples are going to do these things. In addition to that, they just felt the, they felt the dark clouds rolling in. Jesus has been telling them a little bit um, giving them hints of what's going to happen, but they can just feel it tangibly. Something's different. And of course, the, the greatest trouble they're experiencing at this point is that Jesus, their best friend, who they believe to be the Messiah, the one who's come to change the world, to save the world, to renew the world, who has counseled them and loved them for three years, just told them that he's about to leave them shortly. Okay, so these are not small troubles. These are not things that they're going to feel better about after a good night's sleep, okay? They are deeply troubled. And therefore, what we have in John chapter 14 is the personal ministry of Jesus to his friends with troubled hearts. And so it's extremely applicable to us this morning. So let's go ahead and look at it, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself where I am. You may also be. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Then Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, that means in accordance with his will. He's not a genie, all right, but in accordance with his will, I will do it. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's a key phrase. We'll come back to that. To be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, yet he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not be in the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I've spoken to you, I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, there is a lot in chapter 14. Truth uh, beyond truth, treasure beyond treasure. And Father, we pray that you would um, first help me, but help all of us to have ears to hear that we would, as Sam prayed, experience and realize and believe deeply this incredible comfort that you give to your troubled people. Would you empower us today? Would you encourage us today? Would you fill us with your joy that we might leave here as your disciples as we make earth as it is in heaven? We love you, Father, and it's in Christ we pray. Amen. Um, I've mentioned him before, but there's a... Uh, a Presbyterian author and theologian I really like. His name is Kent Hughes. And he has these preaching commentaries. He compiles a whole bunch of his sermons and turns them into commentaries. And he has one on the Gospel of John. 
And uh, he describes our current time, like right now, as the cardiac age. That is, considering all of the things and all of the troubles and evils in this world, it's amazing that more of us don't have heart attacks. It's the cardiac age, he says. And it's, I think he's right. I mean, everybody that you'll meet, Christian or non-Christian, has a troubled spirit these days. I mean, for example, we have a very divisive election that's facing us. And the fallout of that is probably, some people think, going to cause more chaos than the previous two elections. So we have that to look forward to. And then we have all these regional wars across the world. And many of those folks think that, you know, just two steps more could launch us possibly into World War III. And that's nothing. I mean, these, those wars are horrible in themselves, but there's lots at stake in all of these different regional wars that we're seeing take place. There's rising crime. There's rising violence. There's rising cost of living. I mean, did you, it's like $25 to get a family meal at McDonald's these days. It's not even real food. And they're charging $25. I mean, seriously. Um, it's just ridiculous. And then, of course, there's the culture wars. And some of those culture wars are, are very serious. And it makes us parents a little weary of raising a child in such an environment. It's a lot. Now, Christians are not exempt from those troubles. In fact, we experience those troubles really on a deeper level because we have a certain biblical worldview that allows us to see things as they really are. And so when we're in our right mind, when we're thinking correctly, we know the world is not as it should be. We know our nation is not as it should be. For crying out loud, we know we are not as we should be. We know our hearts. We're sinful, broken people, each of us with our struggles or addictions or, or things that we're battling. And to top it all off, we are the yahoos, along with these 12, that Jesus calls to go out into the world to make earth as it is in heaven. And if you're just a rational human being, you're thinking to yourself, how in the world am I going to do that? Considering all the things that I have to worry about and all the things that are facing me out there, how does he expect me to do this? That was the, the emotional context, by the way, of the disciples. Especially considering the news they just heard that Jesus, their best friend, was leaving them. How are we supposed to do this, Jesus? So with all of that combined, this, it really is the cardiac age. We need help, in other words. And in the good news of John chapter 14 is that's exactly what Jesus gives us as his troubled friends. Because if you are in Jesus Christ, you are counted as his friend. And how could you not be troubled in this fallen world in which we live? So in John chapter 14, he gives us the help that we need for our troubled souls. What we have in John chapter 14 are not a whole bunch of really sweet platitudes that sometimes our friends give us when we're going through the deep end that sound nice, but, but you know, usually don't really do much for it. They just are nice things they say. I'm thinking about you. I'm glad you're thinking about me, but that's not helping me. That's not what this is. This is gospel truth spoken directly to our troubled and fearful hearts by the Messiah himself. And therefore, what we have here is comfort beyond comfort for troubled souls. Okay? We're not going to be able to hit every verse. So if I don't get to your verse that you really love in John 14, forgive me. There's great commentaries out there. But I do want to pay attention to two subjects that Jesus raises, that he teaches on in John chapter 14 to calm our troubled hearts. 
First off, you have the promises of heaven. This is future-oriented, the promises of heaven. And then secondly, the power of heaven to be experienced now. Now in John chapter 14, this first section is about the promises of heaven. There's three of them. But all of it begins with trusting Jesus. Okay, this is the key to the whole thing, trusting Jesus. If you look at verse 1, verse 1 is essentially the theme verse for the entirety of Jesus' instruction in the upper room. Not just for John chapter 14. If you want a theme verse for chapters 13 through 16, it's verse 1 when Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, friends, just think about that, okay? I mean, that's, that's easy to say. How in the world are we supposed to do that? Think about the early disciples, all the things that they were facing. I mean, they're freaking out. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And they said, oh, I'm convinced. I mean, it's like, how do you say that? Then it actually takes effect in your heart. To be sure, Jesus is not making light of their troubles or our troubles. And he is not saying that we're faithless in having troubles, Okay, because he's forewarned us. We will have troubles in this life. But what he is saying, as his friends, there is no need for us to be troubled by our troubles. Does that make sense? And this is the answer as to why, what he says next. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Now, this is pretty significant how John phrases that, okay? Uh, in that phrase, the first part is an indicative. Trust in God, that's an indicative. So that's describing something that's already true. The second part, trust also in me, is a command. It's an imperative. So this is kind of what it says. Jesus is saying, you guys trust in God. You trust in Yahweh, right? Well, now trust in me. So this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that... Uh, you guys are a bunch of good Jews, right? Yeah, of course we are. Okay, good. You're raised in a, a believing family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We learned the Torah. And okay, well, if you're, if you're raised in the faith and you know the Torah, probably one of your favorite chapters in all of the Old Testament, which was this is the case for most Jews, was Psalm 46. You know Psalm 46? Peter says, yeah, I know Psalm 46. He goes, what does that say? It says, God is our refuge. Do you believe God's your refuge? Yeah, of course we believe God's your refuge. Well, guess what, guys? I am that refuge is what Jesus is saying here. You believe in God? Well, believe in me because I am the answer to everything that Yahweh has promised you. In, in fact, I am the object of your faith. That's what Jesus is saying here. So basically what he is saying is that you and I, his disciples, his friends, are enabled to have peace, which we'll talk about in just a second, are able to have peace in this very uncertain, broken world because we have been given the certainty of faith, where the emphasis is not on our own strength and faith, but rather the object of our faith, Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus says, trust me. Grab a hold of me. Grab a hold of these promises I give you. So if you're thinking about it, there's a lot of things in this life that alleviate our fears, that alleviate our anxieties, certainly. I mean, they're common graces. And God has given us those things. Doctors, counselors, sometimes medicine, all of which can be good. But all they address are the symptoms of our fears. What Jesus is saying here is that he's come for the heart of our fear, the heart of our distress, the heart of our anxiety, the heart of our troubles, 
And the heart of that is either a, a doubting heart, which all of us are like Thomas in that way, or a disbelieving heart. Jesus says, but it doesn't matter because the antidote for both of those things is believing, grabbing a hold of the fact that I am the yes and amen of all that God has promised in the scriptures. So he says, this isn't just a mental ascent. He goes, I want you to believe in me that I am the provision of everything that God has promised you. I'm the object. Now there's three specific things There's a whole lot of things that Jesus could have said, but there's three specific things that he thinks that we need to hold on to as troubled disciples. First off, Jesus will secure our future home. He's basically saying, I I know that you have real troubles and they're really affecting you, but I want you to look beyond them and look at what's ahead of you. I have secured your future home. This is what he says in verses 2 through 4. Now, when he says this, Jesus, he's essentially answering Peter's question at the end of John chapter 13. In fact, everything that Jesus says here in these first 11 verses, these promises that he gives, are answers to the concerns of his disciples. Peter, then, uh, then you have Thomas, and you have Philip, which is really cool because they ask things that you and, you and I might be embarrassed to ask our pastor, but we just reap the benefits of the answers that Jesus gives. And so here's this question that Peter had at the end of John chapter 13. After Jesus says, guys, I'm leaving you. Peter says, what? You can't leave us, Jesus. You can't leave me. I, I need you. I, I, let, me, let me go with you, is what Peter, I mean, it's, it's like this desperation. Now, what he was experiencing was the fear of loss, and all of us experience the fear of loss. All of us have lost a loved one. All of us are are afraid of being isolated or left alone. We've all experienced that, and that's what Peter was experiencing. But notice how Jesus responds to him. Jesus says, Peter, you, you can't go with me yet. One day you will, but I want you to know something. My leaving is actually a benefit to you, brother. Because when I'm leaving, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Which is written in the plural. Which means that if you are in Jesus Christ and you trust him, he has gone to prepare a place just for you. That's what Jesus is saying. If if, uh, uh, Jesus is speaking to us and he's saying, of course you're going to have times of trouble. Of course you're going to have times of trouble. I've promised you that. And it's real trouble. And there might be times where you experience these feelings like, it feels like God has abandoned me. It feels like Jesus is not answering my prayers. It feels like he doesn't care or he isn't able to lift his finger. And Jesus is saying, I understand that's how you feel. I know that's how you feel. But don't you understand too where I've gone for you? He's saying to Peter and he's saying to us, I- I'm, going to the, I'm going to the cross of Calvary for you. And I'm going to be raised from the dead from you. And I'm going to ascend to my Father for you in order to make a place just for you. In other words, Jesus is saying in the midst of their trouble, in the midst of their anxiety, understand that your future is secured. It's secured for all of the saints in this very uncertain place where it feels like we're on shifting sand constantly, Jesus is saying there is a certain future for my people, including you and all of the saints who have gone before you. So let's think about this place that Jesus has left to prepare for us. 
right? This, this place, this home that he's made for us. What is he talking about? I don't know about you guys, but whenever we have like legitimate uh, company come over to our house, not like my friends, but, you know, Sarah's friends or, you know, adults or, you know, whatever, like important people that come over. Uh, Sarah just goes crazy cleaning the house. And she has this threefold step of where one, she tells me what to clean. And it's usually starting with the toilets. And she's, you know, she's kind of my overseer. She's making sure I scrub good. But then after that, she actually gets the cleaning people to come. Which, why did you make me clean for the cleaning people? That's, their, that's what they've come here. That's why we're paying them. And uh, so, first off, we have to make the house tidy for the people who are going to clean our house. And then we come back after them and just do one final sweep of the house. And I'm always, you know, I don't know why we do that. And she just tells me to just pay attention and do what she says. And I say, yes, ma'am. That's how we do things at the Kimbrough House. But, but the point is, is that she, she, she rolls out the red carpet because she wants to honor the folks that are coming into our homes. And we know from Scripture that our Father in Heaven is going to honor you in Christ. And Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you guys. For you. This, is, this isn't just a metaphor. He literally has done that and is doing that. And he's, he's taken, at this point, at least 2,000 years to do it. And it's going to be this breathtaking place beyond our imaginations. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says is this place that he's going to prepare is the city of the living God. It's his dwelling place. And that's where Jesus has gone. That's where he is preparing your room in his dwelling place. It's the beatific vision. That beatific vision is when you actually finally see Jesus Christ face to face and in the twinkling of an eye, all of the dross that's remaining is melted away and you're made new and you experience the apex of ecstasy, of joy, because you see Christ. And then you realize you get to spend the rest of your life in the presence of that, in the presence of him, in rapturous intimacy, in rapturous fellowship, where the Lord of the universe is your friend forever and ever. And when is that day going to come? I don't know. But Luke says in Acts chapter 17, that date was entered in the calendar of God when the world was made. He has gone to prepare a place for you. And he's coming back to get you. And in the meantime, he's going to preserve you. And so the point is, brothers, do you trust Jesus with your future? Paul says, set your mind on this. Because if we don't, here's one thing. We are never going to be able to follow Jesus faithfully in this life because we're going to be too shook up on our troubles. And we're going to start hedging our bets. We're going to trust in Jesus, but maybe he's not going to pan out. So we're going to put our trust in all these other buckets too. But when we do, not only are we going to be enabled and empowered to follow Jesus courageously, but all of those troubles and all those fears we have, they're still going to be there, but they're going to lessen because we know whatever comes our way, hell or high water, Jesus has us in the grip of his hands and he's coming to take us home to be with those who have gone before us in the faith and the troubles of this day will not be worth comparing to the glory of that day. And so Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust me, I am preparing a place just for you. 
Secondly, Jesus says, trust, I am the way to the Father. We see this in verses 5 through 7. In verse 5, Thomas says, Jesus, that sounds really good. I need that. I'm desperate for that. What you just told Peter, this home. Please show me the way. I don't want to miss it, is what Thomas says. Now, again, I think we can hear ourselves in that question, in that concern. I mean, how many of us with our Presbyterian guilt and pharisaical ways say, I, I believe Jesus, but ugh, I just want to make sure that, that I'm in the bucket. You know, I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I need to do. How can I be absolutely positive that the Father loves me and has accepted me? What do I need, you know, to put it kind of like a contemporary Christian, cultural Christian, what are we going to say at the pearly gates when Peter asks us, why should I let you in? You know, we've, we've thought about those things before. And this is how Jesus answers. He answers with one of the most famous sayings he's ever said. He says, Thomas, or Barton, or whoever, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, what he is saying, Thomas, listen, I, the true reality and the truth is incarnated in me. I am the only one who offers everlasting and abundant life. I am the one who leads you to the Father. And therefore, no one comes to the Father except through me because I am the way is what he's saying. The emphasis is on the way, because that was, again, Thomas's question. Now, there's two things I want us to focus in on here, okay? First off, as disciples, especially as we're out there in mission, we cannot dumb down or water down the exclusive claim that Jesus makes here, okay? Because in doing so, we're denying Christ, but also we're blinding people to the hope that Jesus gives them. This is not an exclusive statement made by Barton or Christians. This is an exclusive statement made by Jesus himself. And therefore, brothers, think about it like this. It's a message of hope. Because out there in the world, and we know this, before we converted, there's all sorts of false hopes out there. This is Jesus graciously and kindly showing us that those are false, that there's only one hope, and that hope is found in me. Jesus is essentially lighting the runway so planes are able to land safely in him. And as those who have already landed safely in Jesus, this is what we're called to do. We're basically runway attendants. We're lighting the pathways like this is where you need to land. This is the only hope of the world. Land here safely. Which is what Peter says in his ministry after Jesus has left. In Acts chapter 4, he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. That is not a verse to be embarrassed by. That is a message of hope. There are blind people stumbling around looking for hope out there. And this is what we give them. This is where hope is found. Which leads us to the second thing I want us to see. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I am the way. No other world religion makes this audacious claim. World religions give you hoops to jump through, advice to follow, steps to take in order to get whatever version of heaven they ascribe to. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying you got to push this button and you got to fill out that formula and you got to fill out this form. He is saying trust in me. It's not about these things that you need to do for me. It is about trusting in me personally. You cannot do the things that you need to do. I alone, as we just saying, I alone, Jesus says, break down the barriers of sin and death. I alone can give eternal life. I alone can show you to the way to the Father. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you receive me as Savior and I 
take up residence in you is in that moment that you now are in the way. Because it's just about trusting me, putting your hope in me. Brothers, think about how comforting that would have been to Thomas and to all of us as disciples, our religion, our faith. It's not this pharisaical thing of all these things that we have to do or uphold. It's not about who your family is or where you came from. It's not about how well you think you're doing upholding the commandments. It's not about how great you raised your kids. It's not how good of a husband you are. It's not about any of those things. It's about trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. So what do we say to whoever's at those pearly gates? We say my only plea is that Jesus bled and died for me. That's what Jesus is saying. He, he, he's saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in me, and I will take you home. Lastly, he says he reveals the Father, verses 8 through 11. Philip now voices his trouble. Um, he goes, Jesus, thank you for, for securing that place for us in heaven. Thank you for showing us the way to the Father, but could you please just give me a glimpse of the Father? That's basically him saying, could you please just reassure me? All that I need really is just this, this, this quick glimpse of the smile of my father's face, then I'm good to go. All right. Again, I can hear myself in that. All the times where I pray in my own version, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. And notice how Jesus answers us in that. He goes, guys, listen, I know that you want to be reassured. You know, I know like Moses has gone before you. I, I know that you too want to see the, the glory of your father in heaven. You want to hear him announce his blessing over you. But have you guys learned nothing yet? Did you know every time you look at me, you see the father? Every time you hear me, you hear the father? Every time I make a promise to you, it's the father making that promise to you? That's what Jesus is saying to a bunch of monotheists. I and the Father are one. I'm, I'm the Son of God, and, and I'm the perfect autobiography of all the Father is and says. Look, basically what he is saying here, for the first time in history, humanity can behold the face of God, and we behold it in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers, the deity, the one who created all things, has come to us and made himself known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. John says the same thing in, in verse 18 of chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. Only God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. He's saying, Philip, you have been given a treasure beyond your imagination that whenever you come to believe me and know me, you know the Father already. And you are united to him more closely than anybody could ever dream. You know him, and, and this is what I promise you. We've been given this amazing promise. Now, Jesus is saying, after all of this, I know that you have troubles. I'm not dismissing them. But you have to understand, you have something greater than all of your troubles. You have greater reasons not to be troubled. Again, don't you think it's interesting that Jesus tells us not to be troubled after he's already revealed to us that he was troubled? I mean, it's like the pot calling the kettle black. It's like, why are you getting on to me for being troubled when you said yourself that you're troubled? The answer here is the gospel, gentlemen. 
Jesus was troubled so that you and I might not have to be troubled. Think about the troubles of Jesus. The troubles of Jesus were being betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, stripped naked, beaten, dying for our sins and separated from God. He experienced those troubles to free us from the only trouble that could actually destroy us. And when we know that and believe that, we can look at our smaller troubles and with the courage of faith, as Paul says in Romans 8, we can say we are more than conquerors, not because we're so strong, but it's through Jesus who loves us that we're able to say that. So he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in me and grab a hold of these assured promises of heaven that I've given you. Now, secondly, he goes to that second subject to calm our hearts, the power of heaven. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Something that these three disciples said triggered for Jesus to give us a new teaching on the Holy Spirit. It could be because he knew they were worried about ministry as we are. How in the world are we going to do this? You just said Peter's going to fail you three times. If he's going to fail you, the rock, of course, I'm going to fail you. And of course, Jesus is leaving. So how in the world are we? We don't know what to do. So it could be because of that, or it could be because he knows the persecution that we're going to experience from the evil one, which he mentions in verse 30. It could be because, because both of those things. But either way, in order to comfort us here and now, he moves from the promises of heaven and encourages us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the power of heaven. And so notice, all of this takes place in the context of missions. In verse 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. Okay, so the disciples are wondering how we're going to do this. Jesus says, don't worry about it. You're going to do the works that I do, which must have blown their minds. What do you mean do the works that you do? We've seen you feed 5,000. You raised Lazarus from the dead. Are we going to do that type stuff? I mean, their minds were probably blown but not as much as what he says next. Jesus says, because I go with the Father, you will do even greater works. And they, they, we're going to do greater miracles than you did? No, and the context is not miracles. The context is mission. And what was Jesus' mission? It was come to seek and save the lost. And what Jesus is saying here, through you, my church, I'm going to save a vast number of people, far greater than those people whom were saved in my earthly ministry for those just three years. He says, I'm going to do miraculous, incredible things through little old people like you. And we say, how are you going to do that, Jesus? He goes, well, I'm going to send you another helper, verses 15 through 17. The key verse there is verse 16. He says, I will give you another helper. In the Greek, another helper is alos parakletos, paraclete. Okay, that means advocate, helper, but the word alos, that's the word for another. This is significant because there's two Greek words for another. The first word that's not used here is like, Barton, I'm so sorry you dropped your banana. Let me get you another piece of fruit. Here's an apple. Okay, it's just another thing. Here, it's another of the same kind. So Jesus is saying, guys, I'm going to send you uh, not just any helper, but a helper that you've already known and have experienced. Now, up until this point, the only helper they've known and experienced is Jesus himself. So he is saying, I am sending you a helper that is just like me, that's going to do for you the very things that I've done for you. That's what Jesus is saying, that he's going to send a helper that's like him. But then he goes on to say, this helper is actually a little bit better because not only will he be with you like I was, but he will be in you. 
and forever. So this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is painting here. Go through the roller decks of your systematic theology of all the things that you know the Holy Spirit does. It's remarkable. It's amazing. He's the one who regenerates us. He changes our hearts. He's the one who convicts us. He's the one who leads us. He's the one who guides us. He's the one who makes us fruitful in ministry. He's the one who empowers us to put to death our sins, as Paul says in Romans 8. I mean, it's stuff that we desperately need. But right here, Jesus is saying that the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of those troubled disciples is the fact that he brings the experience of Jesus' love and Jesus' presence to bear in their hearts. And he goes, I'm sending that to you so that even though I'm not with you, I'm really with you. And you're going to experience my love and my presence to a greater degree than you even experience in this upper room, guys. Now, how is he going to do that, this Holy Spirit? Well, there's three roles that Jesus mentions. First off, he's going to send him as a counselor. We see that primarily in verse 16 and 26. Jesus is going to send the helper in the sense that he will be our counselor, someone to encourage us and comfort us. Now, again, that was the very ministry of Jesus to these disciples. For crying out loud, he's encouraging them and comforting them in this upper room as he's saying these things. Furthermore, paraclete means helper and advocate. Jesus is our advocate. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. Jesus saying this spirit, this helper is going to defend you, going to encourage you, going to commend you, going to bless you, is going to be with you and comfort you. Which, by the way, was the very same ministry the Holy Spirit gave Jesus Christ himself, if you remember. The Holy Spirit ministered to Jesus from the very get-go, from his inception, through his growing up in childhood, he grew up in wisdom, through his baptism where Jesus, where the Holy Spirit affirmed Jesus, through his ministry, empowering him all the way up to the resurrection, he was raised in the power of the Holy Spirit. You could say that the Holy Spirit was Jesus' best friend. And right here, Jesus is saying, that is the same spirit I'm giving you guys. My best friend. This Holy Spirit who knows me best and knows you best and, and knows what to bring from me to you best. He's the one who's going to speak to you on behalf of me. I'm just thinking about how cool that is. Have you ever wanted to sit down with Jesus and tell him exactly how you feel? Did you know you can do that? And it's even better than what the disciples were able to experience in those first three years because there's no crowds, there's no lines. We can speak directly to Jesus and he can speak directly to us, comforting us any second of any day. What a blessing that he has given us in the gift of the Holy Spirit. That whenever we go to Jesus through prayer, or through word, that's what it means to walk by the Spirit, by the way, going to him in his word, believing in it, abiding in it. The Holy Spirit takes all that Jesus has said and promised and brings it to bear in our hearts to where we actually can experience it. You have a more intimate relationship with Jesus right now than John, Peter, and James did prior to Jesus' death and resurrection. You experience his love more tangibly, more fully. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is our homemaker. Verse 18, verses 21 through 23. I took this right out of Sinclair Ferguson's book. He says at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus says that he goes to make a home for us. So in a sense, Jesus leaves us to take up the role of a homemaker. He has gone to his father's house to make a room beyond our wildest dreams for us. But then in verse 18, Jesus says, But don't be troubled. I will not leave you as an orphan. I will come to you. How does he do that? 
Verse 23. If anyone loves me, that is, is a true disciple, not perfect, but anyone who obeys my commandments, whoever is following me, that means loves me. Whoever loves me, my father will love him. And together the father and the son will come to him and make our home in him. Right? So just as Jesus is getting our home ready in heaven, the Holy Spirit is making our heart a home for him. And that means a couple of things. First off, that means that the Christian life will never be comfortable. If the Christian life is comfortable for you, we might have to have a conversation. Because the Holy Spirit's rearranging the furniture of your heart. He's polishing the countertops. He's dusting the drapes. He's removing the dross of your sin. He's making you more and more like Christ. He's convicting you of your sin. That's, that's never fun, but that's good news because he's readying us. He's polishing us. But more positively, it also means, too, brothers, that you are never alone. You are never alone. Your loved one leaves you by death of loss or whatever other reason. You feel like you're the only one like you. You're the only one that believes Jesus at your workplace. You feel like you're behind enemy lines. And we very much are a lot of the times as Christians in this fallen world. In those moments, Jesus says, don't you fret for one moment because I've made a home in you and I will be with you forever and ever. And as we, brothers, again, walk by the Spirit, abiding in the Spirit, going into the Scriptures, He seals to our hearts these promises that we know are true, that we truly are co-heirs of Christ, heirs of God, that we are His adopted sons, that we are royal family members in the family of God and we have a home. So he is our homemaker. Lastly, he's our teacher, verses 25 through 26. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that I love how he says this. The Spirit of God searches the depths of God and makes them known to us. Which is what Jesus says similarly in verse 20. That when the Holy Spirit comes, the disciples, us who have already have the Spirit, will have a deeper understanding of Jesus, the gospel, and the Father's love for them. And we know this phenomenon. You could have a very intelligent friend who's not a believer. He gets the, the calculation of the gospel. He gets the, you know, the, the four pillars of you know, the four spiritual laws. He, he can reason through that. But it still makes no sense to him, but it makes sense to you. In fact, it's completely changed your life. It's blown your mind. You have a new way of seeing the world, of seeing God and seeing yourself. That's the Holy Spirit that's made that happen. That's not just because you're a smart guy. The Holy Spirit did that. And so what it means is when we go to the Scriptures, walking by the Spirit, not only does the Holy Spirit make us more and more like Jesus, but he helps us to know, see, experience, and even be more convinced of the perfect, indescribable love that Jesus has for us. And in that, we experience peace. Not peace of this world, His peace, which is, of course, fruit of the Spirit, a blessing of the messianic age, a peace that surpasses human comprehension that we're able to experience no matter what season of life we go through. What an advantage he gives to his fearful disciples. D.A., or rather, Dane Ortland says in summary, this second half of John 14, 
the Spirit turns our postcard appreciation of Jesus' love and affection for us into an actual experience of sitting on the beach with a drink in hand and toes in the sand. An actual experience filled with His love, His joy, His peace. The Spirit does this decisively at our conversion, but also 10,000 times over as we slog through sin and trouble when we return to His life-giving Word. Because what we read there, the Holy Spirit brings it into our hearts and says, this is true of you. This is what Jesus is saying. He is not dismissing our problems. He's not saying we're faithless when we have problems or when we struggle with problems. He is reminding us that Jesus is greater than every single one of our problems. And he is saying, look to me, trust me. Trust that I have secured your future, that I've secured the future for all of the saints, and that I'm with you even now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And every time you walk with the Spirit, when you abide in my word, he will convince you that, yes, you are more than a conqueror. This is the comfort that Jesus gives his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled, but trust in me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I confess, I don't know about the rest of the men in this room, but I confess that almost weekly, I'm in a place where I say, I believe, but help my unbelief. We are men of weak faith. But the great news is that's not the point. The point isn't the strength of our faith. The point is the object of our faith. And so, Jesus, we look to you, and we do pray for your Spirit's help, that you would increase our faith, that more and more we would encourage each other, but also receive the mutual encouragement of the Spirit to grab a hold of those promises that Jesus gives us, that we might go out into the world to show people how great you are, the only hope of the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.